1: And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on a book as I'm driving to work. If I'm exercising, any free time working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out slash audible to make your smartphone smarter. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show today Chris Brady. He's listed as one of the world's top 25 leadership gurus and among the top 100 authors to follow on Twitter. You can follow him at at Rascal Tweets. He's spoken to audiences of thousands all around the world on principles of leadership development and self-improvement in all aspects of life. He's a highly influential business leader. He co-founded The Life Business with Oren Woodward. He's an accomplished author. I first came across him and Ord in their, their book, Launching a Leadership Revolution, a highly influential book in my life. He's also the author of a great book called Rascal, a great book, that uh, helps you understand and find your original character. He's also uh, Leadership uh, and Liberty, Pieces of the Puzzle, Leadership, Tidbits, and Treasures, and his most recent book is A Month in Italy, Rediscovering the Art of Vacation. Chris, what an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to The Dose of Leadership.
2: Thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on.
0: Well, guys, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I told when Oren was on a month or so ago, and I told him that uh, launching A Leadership Revolution, what a great, impactful book. I'm sure you're getting a lot of uh, Uh, a lot of compliments from that. I told Oren that that was the book, and it still is a book that I reference. It helped crystallize my thoughts on leadership. It's one of those basic, common sense, easy to understand, but uh, full of just chock full of of time-honored truths and principles. Tell me about the genesis of the book and how important it is to you.
2: Well, the the book was accidental, really. Oren Woodward and I have been in business now for almost 20 years, and we had found a recurring question with some of the people that we consulted with and counseled on how to build businesses and how to have more success in their lives. And it kept coming back to this concept of people needing to take personal leadership and responsibility and exert their influence over their things that they're trying to accomplish. And so we were on a vacation with our families in the British Virgin Islands, and we sat up late one night kind of kicking this around. And our wife got a little bit tired of it and went to bed. And Lauren and I sat most of the night kicking through these issues, and we thought that we would... Come out with maybe a laminated sheet that would answer these common questions about leadership so we could stop doing it over and over again. And the sheet kind of grew into a little pamphlet. The pamphlet kind of grew into a little booklet, and then that grew into a book. And we self published it, and somebody came to one of our conferences and really liked the book, took it and sold it to the Time Warner in Manhattan for us, and they were later bought out by Hachette. And then uh, the rest is history, so they say. So people ask you, how do you get the New York Times bestseller list? Well, that, that's the way we did it the first time.
0: You know the thing that really, you know, it struck me, and it's 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 almost embarrassing to admit this at this late in life, but it, when you looked at when I first started studying leadership, I didn't really look at it in that aspect that they really are um, leadership principles just exist. You know, I'm a huge proponent of that. I'm that's something that I, they talk about, and that's something I learned late in life. You know, maybe most of us do. Maybe I'm just late a late bloomer on that. But leadership. Principles just exist, they were given to us almost like rights and they're there for us to discover. I think too often we try to think leadership is more about, you know, how do I how do I get to the next promotion level or how do I get to the next level in in business? But it's just all encompassing in all aspects of life.
2: That's right. And it applies to everybody. One of the one of the foundational elements of our book is that leadership is for everyone. It's not for people who have a title or official positions of authority, or someone who's six foot five, or someone who looks like Greg Norman. We tend to have these stereotypes of leadership, but that's not the case at all. Leadership is for everyone. And we wrote that book, because we know that at some point in people's lives, and at many points in people's lives, they're going to be called upon to lead. And the only question is, will they be ready?
0: That's exactly right. And I think that's that was a part of the book that probably my biggest takeaway. And it's something that you know inherently, but it was it was great to see in such common, straightforward language that we are all, regardless of our position and title, we are all called to lead. And in fact, one of my first early, you know, when I read this book and it kind of crystallized some thoughts and I put some of my own thoughts together and gave a presentation. And I remember asking, you know, who in here considered themselves to be a leader? And this was a group of uh, property managers for a, a hotel company. And, and I've said this before in other podcasts, but I'll, I'll say it again, that, you know, maybe... I don't know, ten or fifteen percent, maybe raised their hand. Some maybe sheepishly. Maybe they were embarrassed. But then when I asked them, you know, who in here is uh, a brother? Who in here is a sister? Who in here is an uncle an aunt? A mother? A father? And we're all one of those. And in that case, we we all have an obligation to lead. And that's what I love about this book. It, it points it out so brilliantly. So uh, I can't say enough about the book.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank enjoying
0: it. And we hope others enjoy it too. What is what is some of your. Um, who are some of your greatest influences, leadership influences? Who were your, kind of say, uh, or at what point did you say, yeah, that's what I want to be like, or that's where it, it really started clicking with you?
2: A bunch of dead guys, really. Yeah. I, uh, first really got, <laughs> I first really got in touch with this concept of leadership in my reading and in my studying, and I've always been interested in history. I always thought it was fascinating to think about what has gone on before us on this planet, but then really digging into biographies and some of the, the people who've gone before us and realizing, hey, they were just like us. They they were kind of just plowing their way forward through the calendar just like I'm doing, and they didn't have all the answers, and they didn't necessarily know what to do, but they, they followed up, uh, a prescription of taking personal responsibility and and being hungry to achieve something and following a vision and being able to learn from others. And they all it all kind of started to come together in my mind that, these were people just like us, but they did things that most of us don't do. Not that we can't, but that most of us don't. And that's what made them leaders. And some of them are famous. Some of them are the big names that everybody hears about. But lots of them are, are kind of obscure. It seemed that anywhere I went that someone cared to write about someone, they had these common traits. And that started to lay the basis for the material that ended up in the book. And so there's an endless list of heroes, you might say, leadership heroes and icons that I've studied through 25 years that really became the basis of what
0: we wrote in that book. How do you, you know, in, in reading it, and, and one of my favorite passages of the book is is early on where you talk about from the chaos, confusion, the rampant mediocrity that we find everywhere in our schools, our churches, the workplaces, the families, the personal lives, the politics, international relations. You know, there there seems to be this this hunger and this thirst, and the audiences that I've spoken to all agree that yeah, will someone please take take charge, take the accountability, and lead i got to tell you, though, I get a little frustrated, and, and I, I get concerned because it seems like we're, we're moving farther and farther away from that. Almost every day at an exponential rate, it seems like there's less and less accountability. What's your take on it? How do you stay positive in this kind of chaotic environment that we're in?
2: Uh, it's a fantastic question because leaders thrive in chaos because the thought runs through everybody's mind. I wish somebody would do something, and the leader realizes sooner or later that she or he has to be the one that does it. And so, you know, you can, there's two ways to look at it. You can get a little bit uh, depressed about some of the situations and the challenges and the cultural shifts that we see taking place. But if you're a leader, you actually get energized about it because you realize, well, hey, I don't have to look very far for my assignment. Something that really angers me, ticks me off or, or moves me, that's probably what I'm assigned to do. So somebody ought to do something. I guess that somebody is me. And then the way you handle the complexity and the chaos is just to remember this: absolute principles cut right through complexity. So the most complex Gordian knot that you can ever be faced with is easily untangled with true principles.
0: I love that. Say that again. I mean, especially that last part, just for emphasis. say that again:
2: Complexity is untangled by true, absolute principles. So whenever some situation just absolutely seems to confuse you and complex you and uh, perplex you, I'm sorry, and just uh, just get you muddled. It's just go back to absolute truth. There's still a right and a wrong. There's still uh, the principles of serving others. All those things are in place. You just go back to simple, absolute truth and do what you know and do what you know to be right. And that is how you cut through the fog of war, so, so they speak.
0: Yeah, and really what you're hitting on, too, and I've talked I, I talked with many guests on this show, and this is the whole concept of authentic. Courageous authenticity, I think, is key. And I think of what's lacking, and you see it when somebody is so authentic and so straightforward, it's so refreshing, and we applaud it. And and but that's what confuses me is I don't know why we we don't see more of it. And is it because people are checking out, do you think? I know I'm guilty of that. I know after certain things, I say, like, well, yeah, I'm not going to follow politics. But now I'm kind of going back to like, look, if if I don't take, you know, just because I don't care about politics doesn't mean the politicians aren't going to try to, you know, influence my life. So we do have to be engaged in politics, don't we?
2: Yes, we do, but we have to understand that uh, to a large degree, politics are a puppet show because they'll sell you uh, a red versus blue solution, and if you'll just vote for the blue side, everything will be fine. Right. Oh, no, no, no. If you just vote for the red side, everything will be fine. Well, one side, in, in today's America, one side gives you the welfare state, the other side gives you the warfare state, and they both seem to be formulas for robbing people of their prosperity and their freedoms. And so it's not the complete answer. The real answer to trying to fight back against some of these currents is to first clean up our own home. Right. First, do all we need to live autonomously and to live freely. And Paul Johnson is a fantastic author. I've never met the guy I'm going to someday. I just love his books. He's such a deep thinker and such a great scholar. And in one of his books, he wrote about the four traits of a hero. And he said, the first one is to think independently, to have absolute independence of mind and come to your own conclusions. And number two is to is to live consistently with those conclusions that you've drawn. Number three is to disregard modern media and socialistic programming that will try to program you in another direction, contrary to what you've already decided independently for yourself. And number four, stand on those principles even if it costs you dearly. And I love that prescription of four traits of a hero because, and he studied all kinds of heroes throughout history and wrote a beautiful book about it called Heroes, Uh, and those were the four things he found common through all the different categories that he analyzed, and I really like that because I believe that if people are concerned about their country and, and civics and where things are heading, that they can do no better thing for freedom than to live like a hero and do those four things Paul Johnson talks about, because there's no way a nation of people behaving like that to never become
0: enslaved. Yeah, I love that. That's great, Paul Johnson. I wrote those down. You know, and I was just having a conversation. I'm gonna. I've had him on the show. I'm having him back. We were talking about this, and we're gonna talk about heroic leadership. And that that's one of the things that uh, I, I love that you brought that up because I think there is a thirst and a need for it. And you're right. And those four those four things are brilliant. And and and. and and when I said I was checking out, it was it was kind of the third one there. I was kind of I, I checked out from the whole kind of the the multimedia thing. And the more that I started doing this podcast, the more that I started talking to people like yourself and Oren and all these other guests, is that there is such a passion. There are so many great things out there. So many people that are crushing and doing positive things that we never hear about. And so that's that's what I love about your work. And you probably you I mean you guys see it. I mean, with life, business, and everybody that you're around. I mean, you, you're kind of just immersed in that on a day-to-day basis, right? I mean, you guys, how big is, is life business now?
2: Uh, it was about $50 million last year. We've got um, tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of business partners uh, stretched across North America, and we're not even two years old yet. So we're very pleased with um, with our size so far and the impact we can make in, in getting life-changing information into people's hands so they can live like a hero, like Paul Johnson said.
0: You know, I didn't talk much about life business with Oren, So, again, some of the members—I mean, it, when when you guys meet—is it—it's it's, got to be a pretty positive experience, does it not?
2: Oh, absolutely! And we work every day to make it more and more so all the time.
0: Well, I know a lot of folks that are in life business. I am not, but uh, I know um, folks that are, and it's had a huge impact on their life. And uh, I'm a huge supporter and, and fan of it, um, especially if. You know, everything is focused around launching a leadership revolution, and, and is that kind of the basis and the genesis of of life? Did that kind of start it yes, off? Yes, it really did. Yeah,
2: yeah, it really is. And again, you know, some of the best things in life seem to happen by accident. We didn't look forward and planned this; it just sort of happened. The book came out at a great time. It really got snapped up with well, you know, very well received in the marketplace, and people started gathering in groups and studying the book and asking us for a handbook and you know we really didn't get a handbook out very quickly because we worked very hard on it, thinking years that's going to be coming out late this fall but that didn't stop people from getting together in groups and and selling the book to their neighbor and and really almost building a grassroots business out of the message of that book and so all that's come out of that uh, the life business and the official structure of our business has all come out of that book
0: and those concepts. Yeah, and I think what, what I really like about what you guys do is especially, and you said it earlier, is like the first thing you got to do is get your own house in order. And I think that's something that a lot of leaders or people who's aspiring for leadership need to do. you got to get your own house in order. And you spend a lot of time on that, on family, on finances, and everything else to, to, to promote and get that in order before you even take the next step. Right.
2: We have, we have what we call the 8F, the, the, and these are the, the eight categories that we find that people live out their lives in. Faith, family, fitness, finances, freedom, friendship, following, and fun. Following is a, is the only F word we can come up with for leadership. Mm-hmm. And we find out that those are the categories that people basically live out their lives in. And so we supply information. Obviously, uh, many, many people have it together in many of those categories. But we can all think of someone who could benefit from growing personally in at least one of those categories. And Many of us can think of people who could grow in at least two categories, and some of us can think of people who could grow in twenty-two of those eight categories. And so that's what our business exists to do: is bring information into people's lives in whichever of those eight S they would like to grow and thrive in, and help them do that.
0: Well, yeah, like I said, I think you guys are doing great work, and again, I know a lot of people that are personally involved with your business, and and it's done remarkable things for them. So kudos to you and your business. I feel bad that I didn't talk to, with Orrin about it. So I, I thank you for letting me take the time to kind of promote uh, life for you here um we were talking a little bit earlier um you know I, I think a lot of times people equate leadership with type a personalities and certainly a lot of the more charismatic larger than life figures are type a but it, it you know leadership is for everyone like you say and you know, like we talked about earlier um you know, a lot of us, though, in in the world out there, and you start. Let's start talking about your your latest book and and how important it is to kind of you know work hard. We work at a feverish pace. We're always busy, but we need to kind of um, um, check out and take a break every now and then, which is kind of the genesis of your new book, a completely different book. Again, I finished it this, this afternoon, and and uh, I was so pleasantly surprised with it. a lot of humor, and I, I to be quite honest, I wasn't quite expecting that. So, talk about the genesis of your latest book.
2: Yeah, the, that book is really uh, a love letter that happened, again, quite by accident. It's called A Month of Italy, Rediscovering the Art of Vacation. And what happened was uh, we took my family had four. I, at the time, my children were much smaller, obviously. Uh, summer of 2010, we took one month off completely, and we went to Italy. I'd, always, I'd been to Italy before, but I wanted to go back and sample it uh, much more substantially. And so we rented some pillows, and we dragged my four little kids and my beautiful wife uh, through the hills of Tuscany, and we just had a wonderful time. And, and I just fell in love with the country, its culture, and its people, the heritage, the history, the art, everything, the food. And um, and uh, it, so many funny experiences happened that on the plane ride home, my wife said, you really need to write this up. And I, I thought, well, I don't know who would ever read it. It's not exactly a leadership book. But I just started writing some of the funny stories, and then the plane landed back in the United States, and I forgot all about it. Well, then we went back a year later and uh, and did it again, and I just got up every morning and kind of wrote back through the experiences, and out of that came this book. And, and ultimately, it speaks to the need for leaders to do what Stephen Covey's, Covey says in his seventh habit, which is take time to sharpen the saw. So many leaders have such responsibility and such heavy workload that they, they let their saw get dull and they don't realize what they've done to their overall effectiveness when if they could just take a little time out, not only rest, but restoration, they could come back bigger and stronger than they ever were before.
0: You know, it's interesting because I, I've taken um, three vacations, the last two, and went back-to-back in about an 18-month span, went to, to Disney World twice. And the first time was a unique experience because we never went. The second time we went I got to tell you it, it was so exhausting, and I was so burnt out I did not feel like I had a vacation at all and the, the best part of that that second Disney World vacation actually was we rented a house and uh, it was out, I was off property and the most memorable nights, the most memorable for both all the family the kids and everything was the nights we ordered pizza and we just hung around the house, and the kids swam in the pool and that sounds so boring but but it's that is at the essence of what you're talking about there. I mean, of course, all of us can't go to Italy, but that's not what it's about necessarily to go to Italy. It's about completely disengaging and blacking out and shutting out from the rest of the world for a moment, right?
2: That's right. That's right. And I, I tell people that the more structure, structured and frenzied your work life is, the, the less so it needs to be on vacation. If you live a structured, busy, crazy life, when you take time out, it needs to be unstructured and very free and very open. And then the second thing that I tell them is to go dark. Shut off the electronics and, and notice how much you're addicted to all that stuff. And when you get that electronic clutter out of your life for even just a handful of days, the, the sense of calm and peace and clear thinking that you can, that you can accomplish is amazing.
0: So, what do you say to the critics out there that say, Well, I just don't have the time, I don't have the money. I'd be nice, Chris, if I could take a month off like you did, but I just don't got the time or the money. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I would invite them to go to my website, um, com because I answer that question there and help people understand that. And there's a free ebook they can get that teaches them just how to do this, because they, they could even take an hour a week. And then, as they can save a little money and carve out time in their calendar, they can eventually do a couple days a month and then. Maybe build up to someday take a week, and then maybe build up to some take a month. There's a whole prescription in there on how they can do that. But it's just something that they have to do. Saying you don't have time is basically saying that I need the medicine of a respite. Yeah. Because we can get so overworked and our effectiveness can go down. When somebody says they don't have time, that's a red flag that
0: says, "Yep, exactly. You're exactly the person that needs to learn how to take a break. You know, it is true. I'm working, I work with a lot of folks from uh, Europe and from Canada, and it is a completely different mindset. You know, they do. There are some folks there that they take um, sometimes two, three, four week vacations is is the norm a lot of times. You have some interesting historical facts, in that talk about how we used to view the world, not necessarily the United States, but the world, and how they viewed honeymoons, and vacations, and 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 how we kind of miss it these, how we're kind of missing the boat these days.
2: Yeah, like you mentioned, not only in the United States North America, too, I'll throw Canada into that, not only are we kind of culturally uh, small when it comes to taking time off and taking what the Europeans call holidays, we're really narrow-minded on it. We don't have much at all. Um, but in Europe, you know, France has 45, on average, 45 paid vacation days a year, when in the United States it's only average at 13. So, contemporarily... We're way behind when it comes to taking time off and sharpening the sword. And there's extremes. You don't want to go too far, of course. Uh, But then historically, it used to be, you know, people would go on something called the Grand Tour. And it was a coming-of-age ritual where you would take maybe a year, maybe two, and travel throughout Europe and visit all the monuments and discover things and take time to really kind of broaden your education by traveling. And other than study abroad trips that some of our colleges offer, we really we really don't have that. Our honeymoons are a three-day budget cruise in the Caribbean or something. Uh, at least that's what mine was. Uh, but back then, you know, the, the middle to the upper classes would take long honeymoons, and they would they would travel and take time to just disconnect and really discover who they are and lay a foundation for the relationship and then get back and get to work building on that. It's very different than what we do today.
0: You know, one of my favorite chapters is when you talk about in um um, I think it was, oh, chapter eight or I meant but when you're talking about the whole concept of the meal and the food and, you know, and how you're you're kind of a, you never really got involved with food. You know, you, how'd you put it? You, you just eat to, to survive, to live. You don't live to eat. And, uh, but you learned a lot about that. Talk about that experience. I thought it was, it was very educational for me.
2: Yeah, it was it was me, too, because I my whole life, I've always thought restaurants were a waste of time and money, and a meal was just something that you did, like a fuel stop, and you fill up with gas, and it's hard to imagine a car salivating over getting its fuel tank filled, but so many people seemed to be so into food, I just really didn't get it, until I had my Italian experience, and then I really got it. I really understood what people mean by good food, I really got acquainted with some of the best cuisine in the world, and even more than just the quality and the, the organically simple, very pure, very few ingredients, uh, those those wonderful Italian dishes grown with local food and prepared locally. In addition to the food quality itself was the experience and just what a social event it is to gather around with people and, and have a typical Italian meal and go through the various courses and and bonded with friends, and just it was just a wonderful experience It opened my eyes. I realized that that I had been very narrow-minded and very ignorant about the really the fine arts of, of dining Mediterranean style, and I fell in love with it.
0: You know, I'm a big fan of history. You know, when I when toured Europe, the biggest thing I did when the first time I toured Europe, of course, I was in the Marine Corps, but I was walking around. And I was walking uh, around um, uh, Germany, and then I walked around England, in particular in England. And it started hitting me, you know, when I was near the Tower of London in this certain section, and you, think, and you walk into American history, you think, oh, okay, that's 230-plus years old. But you walk around there, it's thousands upon thousands of years old. And it, it, it almost boggles the mind, and until you really see something up front, you really can't get a, a, a true appreciation for it. I love the chapter where you talk about where you went, to, you were going to visit the Pompeii, and, and, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. Is it Her, Herculaneum? Is that right? Am I pronouncing that right? Talk to me about what you learned from that. Herculaneum was a city that uh, was covered and preserved much like uh, Pompeii was, correct?
2: That's right. They both were destroyed uh, in different ways by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 A.D. And <clears throat> one of them was covered with ash, that Pompeii. The other was, was uh, smothered underneath a big, tall, quick mudslide, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, and that was herculaneum, it was a coastal town at the time, now it's several miles from shore. But but for those reasons, they've both been preserved. It's almost like a snapshot in time of what civilization was like uh, at the turn of that millennium. Basically, this is almost the time of Christ. And so anyone who has any interest at all in Roman civilization, ancient civilization, biblical history, any of those things, you can walk the streets of these two cities They've excavated almost 60 acres in Pompeii, and there's a whole bunch more to go. The is much smaller. Most of it's covered by the city of Naples. Uh, but the parts that have been uncovered are fascinating beyond compare. I mean, the graffiti is still on the wall. The political campaign posters are still painted on the bricks. You can see the hot and cold uh, water pipes. You can see the chariot wheels, the ruts that were cut in the stone from the chariots going by. You can see counters for what would equate to a fast food restaurant. Just fascinating to realize that we think that because they came before us that they were somehow barbaric and and, uh, not fully developed, but you really lose that sense when you find out just how civilized and how sophisticated they were 2,000 years ago.
0: Yeah. So bringing it back, I mean, I love that stuff. I could eat that stuff up all day. So the book, what we're talking about here, again, bring it back home to me. How does this relate? and why is it important for anybody listening to this podcast who's concerned about leadership?
2: Well, because leadership requires all that you have to give. If you want to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in life, it's going to take everything that you have to give in order to do it. That's just how life works. Sometimes we wish it wasn't so difficult, we wish there weren't challenges, we wish there weren't opposition and obstacles, but in truth, Those are the things that allow us to achieve and overcome and feel like champions when we do accomplish something. And leadership means that you take personal responsibility to fulfill that vision that's been planted deep inside your heart and you just can't shake. Leaders attack the status quo. Well, with all that said, that expends a lot of energy and a lot of focus and a lot of gray matter and everything that you have to move forward in your life and accomplish what you want with the gifts that you've been given. And and automatically that means that there's going to be times when your tank is going to be drained down to empty, if not all the way empty. And you're going to need to find a way to refill it. Leadership means that you're pouring of yourself into others. It's not just personal achievement. Leadership means that you're doing the messy work of inspiring and bringing other people along with you. That's never easy, and it's never straightforward, and it requires a lot of what we have to give. And so every now and then, if a leader wants to maintain long-term effectiveness, he or she needs to find a way to get his or her own tank refilled. And therefore, you've got to go to Stephen Covey's 7th Habit to resharpen the sword, to use a different analogy. But the time in Italy was really my first time ever in my life understanding how powerful that could be. That one month off came almost out of desperation. I was frazzled. I was snapping at people. I lost my edge. My effectiveness was nil. I was like a dull saw cutting on the same tree that just wouldn't fall. I got back from that near four weeks, just four weeks, and the passage of four weeks to everybody else back home was like nothing, but to me it was almost an eternity. I came back entirely refreshed, totally different, with all kinds of ideas in my head that had come from clear thinking and not being interrupted all the time. And I started two, uh, I'm sorry, I wrote one book with Orrin Woodward that became a bestseller. I wrote another book that became a bestseller, The Rascal Book talked about independent courageous action that you mentioned earlier we, and from that trip I came back and started helped start the life business with seven of my best friends and we made a family decision to relocate our home from the north to the south it was a decision that we had wrestled with for almost 10 years so just four weeks gave me two bestsellers a multi-million dollar business and a new a new home state. now that's quite a bit of decision making for just four weeks but that's the power of it
0: yeah I love it that's awesome. I love the book. It's funny. But at the same time, it, it, it takes you into a, a really reflective place. And I think it's a a great piece of work. I know we didn't talk about Rascal just real quick. And, and uh, what is it just so people know, um, and I love that book. What is a Rascal? Just real briefly.
2: Or act is someone who is courageous enough to be an, a unique character, to be who, the, who God made him to be and not allow everybody else to program them to be somebody else. The world will constantly try to get you to be someone other than who you really are supposed to be, and it takes courage and, and heroism to really, truly be your authentic self, who you are supposed to be. And the point of the book is that you're a hero for doing so, and the world needs you. We don't need a copy. We need you. We need the authentic you. The best you that you have to give. Not one program by society and what you're supposed to be. Life is too short to live anyone's life but your own. And that book goes through exactly why it's necessary and how you can do it. And we call them rascals because they go against the crowd. The cover of the book shows a guy running away from the way the herd. The rest of the crowd is going because almost always it means you're going to have to head off in your own unique direction. And, quote, they may or may not understand what doesn't matter if they understand you're the one that has to understand and you have to follow follow your vision and your heart's desire and have the courage to be who you were built to be
0: awesome chris uh where can they find you i mean you're you're pretty prevalent on the on the web and you got a lot of great resources where would you like people to look for you
2: well, the books are available everywhere books are sold, but you can probably start uh, by digging into www.chrisbrady.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-B-R-A-D-Y.com. That's my blog and my personal home uh, home site landing page, and you can find everything else from there.
0: And, folks, i got to tell you, if you're interested in leadership, if you want to try to take it to the next level, I mean, it, it, of, there's there's a handful of resources, there's a handful of people that have helped shape my leadership thought. You guys have heard me talk about it. I seriously think go find Chris's stuff go find Oren's stuff and go check him out um, I, I guarantee you won't be disappointed Chris thanks for coming on the show anything I can do to help you guys I'm always here for you
2: thank you so much it's been a delight to be on with you today
0: alright Chris we'll, we'll talk to you again soon Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose
1: of Leadership community visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm confident consistent and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.